1: Welcome to the Hornets Hivecast, the official podcast of your Charlotte Hornets. Here's your host, Sam Farber. Welcome to another edition of the Hornets Hivecast, your daily podcast with all the notes, quotes, and daily buzz around your favorite NBA team, the Charlotte Hornets. I'm Sam Farber, and it is a pleasure and a privilege to have you with us once again. A game day edition, a very busy edition. We've got a lot to talk about. Yes, Hornets at the Clippers tonight trying to pick up their first win of this Western Conference road trip after two rough goes against Denver and the Lakers. Also, we've got the trade deadline coming up, and the Hornets performing very well in clutch time once they get there. And those two things are well documented throughout the season, but really had a big spotlight put on them recently in the Charlotte Observer, with the great, great Rick Bennell making major pieces on both those topics. And we're lucky enough to have Rick back with us on the Hornets Hivecast to talk about them as well as tonight's game. So without further ado, Rick. Welcome back to the HHC.
0: Well, Sam, thanks for having me. I appreciate
1: it. Let's start with the trade deadline. And the risk, of course, anytime you talk about this for a podcast is that between recording this and posting it, whatever we say will be made irrelevant or just plain wrong. But your thoughts, you recently wrote about the trade deadline and how Mitch Kupchak has approached it, both as a Hornet and previously in his general managing career with the Lakers. What are your thoughts as of this moment on the Hornets approaching the deadline?
0: Sam, I'm glad you phrased it that way because I will tell you that I went back to real GM's database and I looked at everything that Mitch did over 17 years running the Lakers. And I compared that to recent history prior to Mitch coming here in Charlotte. So what I'm getting at is everything I, I did was based on educated guests. Mitch did not give me an interview for this story, but I think there are two very reasonable Um, assumptions we can make based on those track records one is that mitch is more wary about making in-season trades than his predecessor rich cho you know the hornets went six consecutive trade deadlines making a trade and some of them were pretty significant they can all sort of be defined as trading for a veteran often a, a rental and usually giving up something like a second round pick to make something happen mitch i found this pretty remarkable made only nine in-season trades of any sort in those 17 years that he had you know final say over or basketball decisions with the lakers that's a really small number of in-season trades the other thing that i think this indicates is that mitch is more reluctant than his predecessor in giving up future assets specifically draft picks rich was prone to using second round picks as kind of lubricants to make something happen mitch has obviously had significant success (laughs) Devontae graham being the most obvious one but also you know jalen mcdaniels and you know and, and cody martin The second round has been important to Mitch. I think he placed a different value on on future picks than Rich did in that regard.
1: I think the second round has given tremendous value, not just for the Hornets, but look at guys like Nikola Jokic, one of the favorites to be the MVP of the league. It's not a number one pick. He was a second rounder who got developed over time.
0: Mark Gasol, he drafted him like 48th,
1: and look what he became. Jordan Clarkson, another one, a later draft pick selected by Mitch. Who has blossomed into it? You know, as much as we think LaMelo Ball is the runaway favorite for rookie of the year, Clarkson is in a similar footing for sixth man. Fans, when they look at the trade deadline, they're very much prisoners of the moment. We get it. You know, team wins a game, it's buy, buy, buy. Team loses a couple, it's sell, sell, sell. It's important, though, to look at things through some context. I know right now the Hornets have lost two in a row, but they're against two of the best teams in the NBA. So anyone thinking, well, you have to react immediately off these might be acting prematurely. And similarly, the Atlanta Hawks, they're flying high right now. They've won seven straight games, but they're about to start an eight-game road trip where they're going to see the Lakers and Clippers and Warriors and Nuggets and Suns and Spurs, and things can change very quickly. So in your Research on Mitch kupchick and how he approaches everything. How much of the short-term and long-term factors into this potential upcoming decision?
0: Okay. Well, we talked about Marcus Sullivan a minute ago. Mark came into the picture two trade deadlines ago, and remember that was a time when they still had Kemba Walker and they still perceived themselves as chasing a playoff spot. They got very involved with the Grizzlies in regard to Gasol, and when a bidding war broke out and Toronto raised the bar for what it was going to have to take to pry Gasol loose from the Grizzlies, Mitch backed off. And I've got to believe, without knowing every little nuance of what that was about, that it was because Mitch was not comfortable dealing something like a first-round pick, you know, to make that happen. I have a feeling that that trade would have been much more likely to have gotten done under the Cho administration than the Cupcheck administration. As I said, I think that the subtext of all of this is Mitch has a higher bar for justifying moving a future pick in order to make something happen.
1: And also seems to have, at least based off my conversations with him, a longer-term vision. Yes, the team wants to make the playoffs. But sacrificing something that could be valuable, either a player or a draft asset, two, three, four years down the line, is not worth giving yourself a 1% better chance of making the playoffs right now and sacrificing that asset later on. Or at least that's what I've taken away. I think it is fair to say that he is
0: not someone who sees Reynolds as generally a good idea. But Sam, I will say something else that I think is important to this discussion I totally get why they did whatever they had to do to get Gordon Hayward because it's just so hard to get a free agent of that consequence to not only leave his team, but go to a small market team like Charlotte. Having said that, if there's one thing that really surprised me about this offseason is that they didn't figure out some way to address their aching need for more rebounding and rim protection, whether it was a trade or a free agent, even if it was just a minor thing to do. I don't think it's any surprise that the center position has been the most shaky situation of the five. If they're going to do anything, I think that would have to be the area to be addressed.
1: It's also been the most injury-affected Throughout the season as well, I think no matter what, whether you're covering the team, calling their games, or just a fan in general, it's nice to see the Hornets, in whatever publication we're reading about them, mentioned on the buyer's side than the seller's side. Start of the season, not a lot of national folks gave the Hornets a lot of hope to be a playoff team. Right now, they're very much in the thick of things at 20-20. and So, uh, it'll be an interesting run to the trade deadline, and we'll find out if uh, between right now and when this gets posted, if everything we just said becomes irrelevant because something ends up happening or not happening. We're going to keep going here with Rick Bonnell in just a moment. He had another great piece recently published in the Charlotte Observer about clutch time, and we're going to talk about that after this on the Hornets Hivecast. Buzz City, it's time to return to the Hive. There are a limited number of socially distanced tickets available for each game. Fans can expect enhanced cleaning and disinfection procedures and an upgraded ventilation system at Spectrum Center because the health and safety of the team, staff, and guests is the top priority at the Hive. Join us when the Hornets fly again Friday, April 26th at 8pm as the Hornets host the defending Eastern Conference champion Miami Heat. Tickets on sale now at Hornets.com. Rickman of the charlotte observer our guest today on the hhc highly 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 encourage you to subscribe to the observer and read his fantastic work rick you had a piece recently about the hornets in clutch time and just for some perspective for the fans clutch time is a game that is within five points or less with five minutes or fewer remaining and the hornets are at an historic level you found the best team not just this year But in any year, these stats have been tracked in clutch time.
0: Nobody who I went to college with would ever have described me as a numbers guy. But I respect analytics. And I love the fact that there are these databases where, you know, normal skulls like me can look things up. The NBA started tracking clutch time stats back to the 1996, 97 season, I think. And I got on there one day and looked at the Hornets current numbers and compared them historically. And this blew me away. If they continue on their current pace, they would not only have the best net rating in clutch time in NBA history, but they would obliterate the previous record the best team in clutch time ever as far as net rating which i think is the most legitimate measure of a team a team's execution was that 2008-2009 cavaliers team with lebron i mean they wouldn't even come close to how the hornets are performing in clutch time you know whatever else we think of this team's limitations they have been just remarkable in how they have played down the stretch of close games it's no coincidence that 13 of their 20 games have been won in close time i had several interviews with the players and with the coaches and i asked them i said beyond the obvious what do i need to know about what this is about a lot of it i think is about mindset i think Terry rozier is one of the most mentally tough people i have covered in 30 years covering the nba But they've got other guys like Gordon Hayward and Miles Bridges and Devontae Graham who have not been reluctant to take and, you know, make big shots. And, you know, I think one of the things JB said to me that I think is very valid, he said everybody thinks that if you're good enough to be in the NBA that you wouldn't, you know, be reluctant to have the ball in your hands at the end of a game, but there are a whole lot of guys who want no part of that. The other thing that I think is important, and I know that this was about JB, having worked for Greg Popovich for a decade, is they emphasize this. A large portion of Jay Triano's workday is spent deeply, deeply researching a team's tendencies at the end of games and matchups. And he takes, you know, this flood of information before every game and distills it literally down to five laminated cards with the best choices that they have when they absolutely have to get a basket or get a stop when the game is most on the line and borrego and triano review that about 90 minutes before every game because as jay said when you need to convey that information in 30 seconds of timeout in a high game with a minute and a half there's no time for discussion or debate it's got to be super simple and super clear The results speak for themselves about how well this has gone.
1: We'll go back to the players part of this in a little bit, but I want to dig deeper on the coaches because I think pro coaches are tacticians. College coaches are motivators, they're recruiters, they're organizers, and they're brilliant basketball minds oftentimes as well. But 90% of college basketball games, I think, are determined before the teams ever set foot on the floor just based off the talent gap. That doesn't exist in the NBA.
0: Dick Carter, you know, was first Hornets coach. He was a very successful college coach before that, and he told me that it just stunned him his first season as, a, as an NBA assistant that more changes are made at halftime of any NBA game than in a month of college games.
1: I believe it. What do you see from J.B., In These decisions because I would say clutch time to me or a clutch game is any game that's two possessions or less and you look the Hornets have now won nine straight games determined by six points or less or that went to overtime the last time they lost one January 16th at Toronto. Lamelo ball wasn't a starter then they had a rotation of injuries i think cody zeller was probably the one down at that point they have gone through so many different roster alignments and who's healthy who's not who's in what's role and game after game after game in the clutch they come out on top
0: and aren't they 15 and oh in a game that they lead going into the fourth quarter they are that's really hard to do in the nba people
1: it's really remarkable the clutch gene in players, one thing that I take away from this, these aren't just give the ball to your best guy. And I think it's fitting that the team that they're ahead of the number two team right now, all time, or number one all time right now is LeBron team. Because I think when you look at the history of the game, some of the greatest players who are clutch, aren't the ones taking the shot. They're the ones making the decision. And LeBron James sometimes caught flack for not taking the shot, but he always seemed to make the right decision. If he wasn't shooting it, the person who was was wide open. And even going back to Michael Jordan, you know, there's several big shots, of course, that he made in playoff situations or clutch situations, but there are just as many iconic moments where he is giving it up to a Steve Kerr or a John Paxson and having them make the hero shot that is that much more wide open because he made the right decision. So looking through all the clutch moments, and you detail them in your article, and again, I highly recommend it in The Observer, there's only two where it's a give one guy the ball and let him go to work situation. Uh, Gordon Hayward against Orlando, Terry Rozier against Golden State, everything else is a play where someone has to make a decision. I would,
0: I would include Malik breaking down the defense in Sacramento, but but I hear you.
1: Well, even on that one, I think you said that LaMelo Ball had the ball in hand.
0: He made the choice between getting it to Malik versus P.J. I meant that Malik made that happen off the dribble on his own.
1: Oh, I yes. You. No, he most definitely did, but I I guess what I'm saying is it's less, hey, clear out, give Malik the ball, and everyone else get away from him. It's more, this is a play, and Lamelo is making a decision, and then Malik, off that decision, takes control.
0: Yes, and I I will tell you, when you bring all that up, here's what comes to mind for me. I think that there is an interesting complement in personalities. Between who Gordon is, how he's wired, and how Terry is wired. And here's what I mean by that. You you and I have talked about how Ron Norid talked from having played with Gordon and Butler has talked about how you can see the engineering major in how Gordon does things. You know, what they love about him is his very sort of even keel decision making sizing things up terry is an edgier person terry is a you know get in your face kind of guy the last time that the clutch time really applied i guess was you know i guess you could say was the detroit game when gordon went into the lane drew the defense did that classic gordon deliberate spin move and saw Terry where he belonged out there on the three-point line, found him, and Terry didn't hesitate to nail that three in a tie game in the last three minutes. To me, that says a lot of things, but would you agree with me that that says in particular how well... The nature of the way Gordon is and the nature of the way Terry is play off each other in a synergy way.
1: Without a doubt. And I give full credit to both players to Gordon Hayward for having the presence of mind to identify the double team and find the open man. And for Terry Rozier. Because there's a lot of players in clutch time, you know this covering the league, if they're in a situation and they think they should be taking the shot and it's not drawn up for them, I've used this analogy before, they're like a wide receiver on a run play. They're not running the route. Terry Rozier Rozier ran the route. He could have stood in the corner or just stood still and said, all right, you didn't draw this one up for me. Let's see if Gordon can do it on his own. No, he relocated, he moved to the spot, he was in the open space. He was where he needed to be engaged in the play. I give full credit to both those guys, and that's one of the things that makes him so dangerous. You can't double anyone.
0: But also, Sam, what goes hand in hand-in-hand with that is, you're never going to hear Kerry Rozier say, oh, I don't want the ball, I don't want all this pressure on me. There are a lot of people who don't want to take responsibility one way or the other for deciding a game.
1: Most definitely, and I think there are several players on this team who are, willing to take the responsibility for the shot or the decision and hey it's working like I said nine straight games determined by six points or less or that went to overtime that the Hornets have put in the win column but the key as we know Rick if you're going to win in clutch time you got to get to clutch time and the Hornets during the start of this road trip haven't quite reached that just yet They'll try and get there or just get a win flat out against the Clippers tonight. We'll talk about that in a moment when we return with Rick Bennell, the Charlotte Observer, here on the Hornets Hivecast.
0: Hornets fans, be sure to download the Hornets app on your mobile device. The Hornets app is your access to all new features and exclusive content, including the new game day experience for every game this season.
1: Rick Vanella, of the Charlotte Observer here with us on this edition of the Hornets Hivecast. It's a game day edition. Charlotte on the road still. This Western Conference swing continuing. Hornets dropped the first one, a blowout to Denver. A little bit closer against the Lakers the other day. Now they get the L.A. Clippers who are twenty six and sixteen, haven't played as great over the last three weeks or so, going back to prior to the all-star break, but still a very, very formidable team and one with championship aspirations. Hornets at twenty and twenty, trying to get back above five hundred. Rick, your thoughts on this matchup?
0: Celbers have a ton of talent and they're deeper than than most NBA teams. Here's where they're just kind of odd. They're a team without a point guard for all practical purposes. They have a whole bunch of wing players kind of, you know, taking responsibility for what a, you know, one great point guard would be. Like, if I think if you put Mike Conley on that team, you would just dramatically improve the way they function. Paul George is having a real nice season. Kawhi is Kawhi. I thought it was interesting that the Clippers, after the Hornets released Nick Batum, were most aggressive in saying to Nick, hey, you know, we really have a place for you. And Nick has has started most of the games out there. He's fitting in well. He does not have these massive expectations from the public that he had in Charlotte, you know, with that big contract. It's worked out well for them and for him. I will say, and I would have said, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this in hindsight. I would have said this to you a week ago. If the Hornets had a chance of winning any of these three first three games in this road trip, I would have circled the Clippers as the one that is potentially gettable.
1: Before I ask you why that is, just some context. For me going to the trip, I am always a half glass full. There is always opportunity in any to, to get a win and have a big game. I thought going into the Denver game, hey, the Hornets, they're healthy. They're hot. They'd won four in a row coming in with confidence. Why not? The Lakers game, even though it was on the back end of the back-to-back obviously they are without some of their stars no Anthony Davis no Marcus also that was more reason for hope but why in your opinion and I have a, a thought on why the Clippers one would have been the best candidate for a win from these three but why was it to you
0: well missing admission up front I have asthma and so I'm very conscious of what altitude can do to people and so the idea anytime that you have to play a back-to-back against, you know, against two good teams, and one of them is either in Salt Lake City or Denver. I think that's an awful lot of, to put human bodies through. So, I got to tell you, I thought up front that a, a back-to-back of Denver and the Lakers struck me as just the single biggest hell on the schedule. The nice thing about the way this game sets up Saturday, hypothetically, is that the Hornets. Don't have to move, they don't have to get into a plane, they don't have to get into a whole new hotel rooms. Today, they have a chance to truly rest their bodies, to reconfigure their minds, to get focused on getting their acts together. This is almost like a home game in that regard. And after a really difficult two games, I see this as an opportunity for atonement.
1: They should definitely have their C-level legs under them now in Los Angeles, and that opportunity is there. Going into the trip, several players and coaches I talked to said that this whole trip was a chance to test themselves. They had played well. They had gotten to two games above five hundred. Now is an opportunity to go up against some of the league's very best players and teams and find out how good are they. And I think that the Clippers, not just this year, but for several years, have been a good barometer for how good of a team are you? You know, it's not to say that the Clippers have necessarily been a championship favorite for the last seven or eight years, but they've been a very good team for the last seven or eight years. So beating them is a sign that you are in that playoff class and falling short means that there's probably some work to do still. Clippers have won 10 of the last 11 meetings. Do you see this game as being a barometer for, is this Hornets team really a clear-cut, no question about it, playoff team, or is there still some work to do to prove that they can get there by season's end?
0: Well, the X factor in all that is the rotation changes that Borrego made at halftime of the Lakers game. Was that a one-game thing? Or is that an indication of something shifting going forward? He did not at all like the energy in the first half. He kept continuously referred to a lack of spirit. And his response to that was to not play starting center Cody Zeller at all in the second half and to play Bismarck Diombo only for three minutes what he did is something that he hasn't done at the start of a game he committed to the small ball lineup he played pj washington almost entirely at center in the second half he started miles bridges at power forward in the second half was that just a okay i'm letting you people know that this is unacceptable but things go back to the way they've been the next game or Is that something to keep our eyes on over the next week?
1: Could that be a matchup-related thing as well?
0: I think that was about him saying, I'm not getting what I need from you guys, and I'm putting you on notice.
1: The Lakers, for all their strengths, do not have a quote-unquote traditional center right now with Marc Gasol Mm. out for health and safety protocols. The Clippers do in Avica Zubats, who is under the radar, not quite like Nikola Vucevic has been. Uh, He certainly doesn't have those kinds of stats, but... He's established himself as a pretty good starting center. He certainly does bring that height. Does that change anything in your mind at the matchups? Or as we've talked about a couple of times on this podcast, JB is going to do what he feels is right, regardless of the matchup. Well, I'll let you tell the story because you tell it much better than I do.
0: I love this story. Early in JB's first season here, I asked him one day, if there's anything about the way he looks at life that will impact how he coaches. And he said, I don't want to recall my time as an NBA head coach as reactionary. And I said, describe what that means. And he said that he didn't want to talk himself out of putting his best players on the court simply because he was worried about how he'd match up with the other team. He didn't want to become preoccupied with scouting reports. That really is the way he's coached. For better or worse... He hasn't been afraid to do things that some people would call oddball. And I think the fact that they have used small ball as much as they have this season, nobody ever looked at P.J. Washington and said, well, that guy's an NBA center. But he was willing to try it. And he's been willing to try the three-guard lineup, which he, by his own description, has worked better than he thought it would. I'll put it this way, to boil all this down into into a single thesis sentence. James Borrego is not going to be afraid to live with the consequences of putting the lineup on the floor that he thinks has the best chance of
1: performing. And if
0: that looks weird, if that looks unconventional,
1: he doesn't care. And at the end of that, you've got a a really brilliant basketball mind who has pulled an awful lot of right leverage over the last season and a half here. He's got the team at 20-20 and right now and they'll try and get back over 500 tonight. More Hornets after midnight. They'll tip off against the Clippers at 10 p.m. back in the Queen City. Rick, how's your filing deadline looking for these West Coast games?
0: (laughs) Oh, it's all just blown to hell. I got got to bed at 3 a.m., and I did something I never do, which is I put my phone on silent because I absolutely had to get some sleep, and I woke up at 11 a.m. Friday morning and, Boy, I needed that. Put it this way, I'm very, very happy that the Hornets' last West Coast game is is Saturday night.
1: Hornets and Clippers will have some fun with it Hornets after midnight has been a lot of fun. Even the other night against the Lakers, they outscored the Lakers after midnight Eastern time. So we'll see if that trend continues. Catch all the action 10 p.m. tonight on our flagship station, WFNZ. And you can also watch the game on Fox Sports Southeast. Rick Bunnell, the Charlotte Observer, again, read his work. It is tremendous stuff. The trade deadline piece, the clutch time piece, and all the game pieces. It's great, great work. We appreciate all of his efforts and him joining us here today on the Hornets Hivecast. Thank you, Rick.
0: Sam, I think you know. I, I find chatting with you delightful. I'm glad I'm glad you you asked me to become a, come on as a guest.
1: Guess what? You you get to come on at well, how about you do the postgame one? We're recording around three AM. Not a chance. <laughs> We'll try and get Rick again next time for the Hornets After Midnight, way after midnight podcast recording. But we thank him for all, again, of his fine work in the Charlotte Observer covering the Hornets and for joining us again here on the Hornets Hivecast. Thanks as well to all of you for tuning in. Hope you'll join us tonight as the Hornets take on the Clippers. Till next time, for everyone here. With the HHC, I'm Sam Farber saying thanks for listening. It's been a pleasure and a privilege having you along. And in the words of LaMelo Ball. Thank you. Have a good day. Wear your mask. Thanks for listening to the Hornets Hivecast. For
0: more coverage, visit Hornets.com.